0: Good morning. So, before we begin, uh, I just want to apologize in advance because I got a bit of a cold. And so, if you hear any sniffling or coughing, um, there's not a lot I can do about it at this point. And particularly if anyone's lif- listening after the fact, like you're going to get it real bad. But uh, that's all I can do. So, if you have a Bible with you today, please turn with me to the book of Galatians. To the book of Galatians. We're going to be looking at uh, chapter two today, um, but we're actually going to start our reading in chapter one just to get a bit of context. Before we go there, I'd just like to observe that another year has, has come and gone, H- and it's come and gone very quickly. I mean, all the Christmas presents are unwrapped, and tonight we have the big New Year's uh, celebration, providing the weather doesn't kibosh at all. And then we start this whole process all over again, a new year. And it feels as like I, as I get older, the years seem to go faster and faster. Because a lot changes, a lot changes over the course of a year. <coughs> and as we come to a new year, it's a time of, of hope, of expectation, of a, of a fresh slate. And it's time for us to make our list of things that we want to do better our New Year's resolutions, the things about us that we don't like that we want to change. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to eat better this year. I'm going to exercise more. Maybe I'll actually read my Bible. The New Year holds that both the changes and experiences of the past year, but also lifting up before us the possibilities of the year to come. We haven't screwed up this year yet because it's not here. And we together as a church have some rather important decisions to make in the coming year. As we consider selling our building, maybe buying another property from which to base our ministry, you know, there's potentially big changes facing us. The new year is a time of change. But do you know what hasn't changed this past year? What, What won't change in the year to come? The gospel of christ the good news that brings joy the reason that we're gathered here today what a beautiful name it is the name of jesus christ my king and his gospel his gospel has not changed and it won't change and our calling to tell people about that gospel to follow that gospel is not going to change Back before the Christmas season began, when I last preached to you guys, (coughs) um, I did my second sermon on the the book of Galatians, and we looked at the end of Galatians chapter 1, and we saw how the gospel was was not of human origin, it was not something that Paul made up or something that was taught to him, he received it from God. And at the time, if you remember, I said it was part one, it was part one of a two-part sermon, and the second part we're going to conclude today looking at the beginning of chapter 2. Because Paul is laying out his argument here for why there is no other gospel. There's not an alternative gospel than the one he preaches. And the first step of this is to demonstrate these non-human origins of the gospel. It didn't come from people. It wasn't made up. It wasn't developed or misunderstood or reimagined. The gospel came from God. And we're in a courtroom here. It's a little bit like we're in a court case. and And the gospel's on trial. And so like any good lawyer, Paul is marshalling all his evidence. He's gathering together the list of historical facts of what happened, and he wants to place that all before the jury. And he starts with laying out the facts. Who said what, where, when, how, why? Laying out the history of how how he received the gospel, and then how it was confirmed, and then where the opposition comes from. So if you turn with me to Galatians chapter 1, I'm going to start reading in verse 11 (coughs) so that we get the context for what we're going to talk about today. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. And This is just a pause for a second. This is his thesis statement. Everything that we read today, everything I'm going to read subsequently, needs to be viewed through the lens of that statement, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away to into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, Cephas being Peter, and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Sicilia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were were hearing, it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy and they glorified God from because of me. And now we're getting to our passage for today. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so they may bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they are makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, For he who works through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked through me also for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas, remember that's Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, and that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. And may God add his blessing to his reading of his word today. We're picking up the narrative here in chapter 2, where Paul is about to give us a description of a summit meeting, so to speak, between him and the leaders of the church in Jerusalem. And this is, in a lot of ways, the center, center of his argument for the historical argument for the gospel, because he's going to dive into the, the theological arguments later in the book. The first thing I want you to notice is, is then. <clears throat> the word then. He starts out with the word then. Then implies no gap of time, or at least no other visit to Jerusalem and the apostles. He's declaring that, that nothing of relevance happened in between what, what we ended the ver- in verse 24, and they glorified God because of me, and then fourteen after 14 years. His motive for coming to Jerusalem is divine revelation. And what he's trying to do here, his main points for the gospel being from God, is that first of all, he received it by divine revelation. He's an apostle equal in authority to the others. And then second, that the apostles and him, the apostles and Paul, are on the same team. He's saying, my gospel is their gospel. It was affirmed by them. What he's trying to argue here is that laying out the sequence of events, the historical sequence of events. Notice, though, that Paul, as I mentioned, says he came because of revelation. Now it's not exactly clear what Paul means by this. It's not really clear whether it means, you know, a dream or a vision or some sort of um angelic visitation. We don't know what he means by, by exactly by, fr- by revelation, but we do know that he means it was from God. So this was not some random happenstance where, you know, Barnabas was heading off to Jerusalem and Paul said, sure, I'll come along with you. Or that someone in Jerusalem had called up Paul, or they wouldn't have called up in the day, they would have sent a messenger and said, Paul, you come down because we've got to talk to you about your gospel. No, this is, this is, he went by the behest of the Holy Spirit. He went because of revelation. And Paul wants to make it clear that this is a divine appointment, and that he was not summoned, he is not subordinate. But, but as we kind of dive into this, this story, I don't want us to let Paul's confidence lull us into thinking that this is not actually a big deal. This is not an important meeting. Because Paul is very, is very strong-willed, and he, he says things very forthrightly, and he talks with great confidence, but, but there, is, there is a lot at stake here. The unity of the church is at stake. And that's what Paul means when he talks about making sure he hasn't run in vain. He's not worried about whether or not his gospel is true. He's not questioning, having second thoughts about, you know, did I have it right? Should I, should I change my mind? Maybe these Judaizers, these opponents of mine are, are, are correct. No, that's not what he's worried about. He's worried about the impact that a split between him and Jerusalem could have on the gospel and its ability to go forth. I mean, we know that even from our modern times. You think about the impact that splits have on churches and their ability to do ministry. And this is more so true at the beginning when, when you know, the church is very small. Unity is such a, a fragile thing. Snap your fingers and it can be gone. And Paul knows that him and the other apostles are on the same team, but there are some people who are working really hard To say that this is not the case. And to drive a wedge between Paul and the leaders in Jerusalem. And that brings us to the opposition. brings us to the opposition. But before we dive into our discussion of the opposition, I I do want to take a little bit of time to give you guys some background. Because one of the challenges I think with Galatians, with, as, a, as a whole, is, is the question of how is this relevant to us today? I mean, imagine for a second if our do- doctrinal statement included one of the requirements of being a member of this church was that if you were a guy, we circumcise you. I mean, we'd, we'd say that's ridiculous, right? And we have no concept of why this might even be a question. I mean, we're so far removed from this discussion and this 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 debate that was going on in the early church that it's hard to understand, first of all, why this was even an issue in the first place, and second of all, why is Paul so concerned about it? You see, for the Jews, particularly at this time, circumcision is a really, really big deal. It's a really big deal. And there are two main reasons for why circumcision was a big deal to the Jews. The first of these being the Torah, the the Bible, the Old Testament. Right from the very beginning, when God chooses the people of Israel to be his people, they are set apart. Right, Abraham is called, he's going to have a people, and they're set apart. And they're to be circumcised. This was an outward symbol of the fact that they've been chosen by God. They were his special people, his holy people. It symbolized repentance of their sin. And this rule of circumcision was applied to all males in all of Israel and everyone who resided with them. So it wasn't just you know people who were ethnically Jewish, it was, it was everyone who was part of the people of Israel, whether you're a slave or a servant or a person who just lived in Israel. Circumcision was the rule, it set the people of God apart. In Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 4, Jeremiah actually calls the people to repent by saying, circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskins of your hearts. It was a sign of repentance. But by the time this letter is written, it's become even more defining for a number of historical reasons. As the Jews faced an increasingly hostile world. Some of the Maccabean literature, and this kind of is, this is, the Maccabean literature is basically a bunch of stuff around the time when the Jews revolted. So there's a period shortly before the Romans conquer the, Romans conquer the Jews where they were actually free. They were previously under the reign of a guy named Antiochus Fourth, who controlled the reason, and they rebelled and overthrew him, and for a little time they were free, and, and the Maccabeans were the guys who did this. And this literature tells us that this guy, who was a pretty nasty dude who controlled the region from roughly 175 to 163 B.C., um, tells us there was a standing order put out by this king to put to death any newborn who was found to have been circumcised along with the mother who allowed it to happen. So these people were dying because they were circumcised, because they were following God's word, because they were the people of God. They were put to death. And so by the time we get to the period after Jesus' death, this is the mark. It's the mark of being part of God's chosen people. If you think of Paul's letter to the Philippians in chapter 3, where he lists off all his accomplishments, you know, why, if anyone has any reason to boast, Paul has more. One of, what's the first thing that he lists? Does anyone remember? Circumcised on the eighth day. To reject circumcision was in a way to reject everything that the Jews were. To reject the history of the Jewish struggle to be free. And more importantly, to reject the Torah, to reject God's word. This was not some minor side issue. This was one of the most defining issues for the Jews. The second thing we need to understand about circumcision is that Jewish traditions were largely assumed by the early church. And this makes perfect sense if we think about it for a second, because early on, who, were the, who did the believers largely come from? They came from Jewish backgrounds. The lo- early church was largely Jewish. And if something is assumed by a local culture, there's often no need to even deal with the issue. It's often said we assume or are blind. We're blind to our culture. I mean, imagine for a second, if I was to tell you to all stand up, and I want all the men to sit on to my right, and all the women to go to my left... And that's how we're going to do church from now on. Now, some of you might shrug your shoulders and say, sure, Daniel's being a bit strange. We'll go along with that. But others of you might be a bit outraged. Be like, why are you making me, separating me from my husband or my wife? Or why are you doing this? Now, imagine if I was to tell you that to be part of the church, you had to do this. This is the way things are. And you are not allowed to fight. This is what means to be part of Calvary. Well, now some of you are maybe calling me a false teacher um and freaking out a little bit more but see if i was to go to a rural church in pakistan i wouldn't need to tell anyone to do this they would do it automatically the men would sit on the right and the women would (coughs) sit on the left and that's just how they do things it's not biblical reasons it's cultural reasons So even if I was to be in rural Pakistan and hold this belief that the separation of men on the right and women on the left was like a biblically mandated thing that we had to do, no one might even know, because it would just be what we did. It was assumed by the culture. It would never even need to come up. Now to be clear, I'm not advocating that we, we separate into men on the right and women on the left, but I'm just pointing out how sometimes what seems ridiculous to one culture is just assumed by another. And it was the same way in the early church. Circumcision was just assumed. There was no reason to teach it because everyone did it. Everyone was circumcised. And it was not until we start to see the gospel spreading into Gentiles in significant numbers, Gentile communities, that we start to see this becoming a bit of a question. All the Jews are already circumcised. The Mosaic law prescribed it. So they would have had it happen to them at birth but what about the Gentiles? Do they need to be circumcised too? And, and given these two things, it should come no surprise, the third thing we should remember about circumcision is that this growing number of Gentiles was, was creating conflict. If we're to go back, even as far back as the, the book of Acts. Um, early on, we see there's a conflict between Jewish and Gentile believers. The creation of the first deacons in Acts 6 is actually a direct result of this conflict. There's this questions of favoritism o- over, the, over the, the, um, the, the support that's given to widows, right? Because remember at the time, the most marginalized of society were widows and orphans. They were the people who had nothing, because your whole social structure was based upon the idea that your family takes care of you. So if you're a widow or an orphan, it means you have no family to take care of you. And so you're the most vulnerable of society. And so in the church, basically took over this job. They looked after the orphans and the widows. And there was this argument over, well, you know, the Jewish widows are getting much better treatment than the Gentile widows. And this created a conflict. And so they actually had to create a system to try and make sure that this was done fairly and that people were actually being taken care of. But what you have now is you have a bunch of Jews who are coming from similar backgrounds to Paul, right? These pharisaical backgrounds. They're very hardcore religious Jews who have bringing their Jewish traditions with them and are trying to force them on Gentile believers. Now, before we judge them too harshly, harshly, I do want us to take a step back and think about this for a second. Because Paul has some harsh words about their underlying motivations, but to some degree what they're doing is somewhat understandable. Remember, Jesus never said he came to abolish the law. He was the fulfillment of it. Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. He was not the, yes, he's the the Messiah to everyone in the whole world, but, but he was the Jewish Messiah. He was the promised one to the Jews and he'd to proclaim, pro- proclaim salvation for all who would turn to him, but this doesn't mean we just kind of throw out the Old Testament. You know, we don't have just a New Testament in our Bibles. There's an awful lot written before you get to Matthew. And at this point, too, Christianity doesn't really exist. It's just a sect of Judaism, right? People, A lot of people outside the Christian, like the the, the, the Jewish bubble, so to speak, didn't even have a concept of Christianity being something different. It was just viewed as this kind of extreme weird sect of Jews that, have, that had their, their, their king killed and they, were, they all got all uppity and so on. And so you can understand to some degree too why Peter, James, and John were somewhat hesitant about wholesale chucking out of Jewish tradition. Because if they do this, then they're basically open to the charge of just disregarding the Torah, which is all of God's word that they have at this point, on the basis of their own divine revelation, and could potentially cause the same marginalization of Jewish members of the church that was currently being done to the Gentiles. And this ultimately could distort and harm the witness of the church to the Jews, because the Jews, the, the church was preaching to the Jews, this is the fulfillment of the Jewish faith. Christianity is the fulfillment. Jesus is the Messiah. He has come. And when this is ultimately resolved on a theological level in Acts 15, with this proclamation that Gentiles do not need to be circumcised, you'll notice that they do, they do still ask the Gentiles to practice certain Jewish traditions in order to not offend or not cut off Jewish believers. So this is a big issue in the early church, and it has the potential to split it in two before it even gets started. And so that's kind of the background as we head into this, as Paul starts to describe his opposition in verse 3. But even Titus, I'm going to read it again here, but even Titus, and note that Titus is a protege of Paul. So for those of you who remember, Titus was uh, a guy, the book of Titus, if you remember Steve preached on Timothy, uh, the book of Titus, he also referenced a fair bit, and Titus was a protege of Paul who becomes a significant leader in the early church and he he is sent to Crete later on, but he's at this point he's just kind of following Paul around helping him out, and so it says Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised though he was a Greek i e not a Jew yet because of false uh, because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Enter the opposition. And notice there's three characteristics which Paul notes about about this opposition. First one is they're false brothers. These are quote-unquote members of the church, but only outwardly. They're not total outsiders. There's not these strangers that are coming in. They're people who the Jerusalem church would probably have said are true believers. Like Paul, they come from a Jewish background and are likely genuine in their belief that this circumcision is necessary. They're not lying, so to speak. They probably genuinely believe this, but Paul still ultimately calls them false. Why? Well, he's going to elaborate on this more as the letter goes on, but it basically comes down to this. They are saying circumcision is necessary, necessary to be part of the community of believers, necessary for salvation, necessary for entrance into the church. But if circumcision is necessary, then either Christ is not enough or he died for no purpose. Christ's death sets us free from the rule of the law, and so to submit to it again is to place yourself back into slavery. Their insistence on circumcision showed that they didn't actually understand the gospel. They didn't understand the gospel was a gift. Secondly, their methods were sinister. The language used to describe how these people slip into the conversation, carries this connotations of conspiratorial activity. It's like this secret group of people who are um, hiding in a corner and plotting, right? That's the sort of th- that's the emphasis that the Greek gives us there. Though they may really believe they're doing the right thing, they're going about it in a less than godly manner. Now, Paul doesn't elaborate on exactly how they're doing this and what they're doing, but it's pretty clear this is all wrapped up in Titus and how they're going about trying to get Titus circumcised Titus is like a little bit of our test case here and and some commentators actually have hypothesized that Paul brought along Titus for the very reason of pushing this issue up to its point Paul has gone in to meet with the key leaders of the church and these false brothers insert themselves into the conversation trying to advocate that Titus must be circumcised and Paul says he did not yield for a moment That Titus was not circumcised because why? Because the gospel's at stake. These false brothers are seeking to enslave, to bring the Gentile Christians back into slavery. And that brings us to the third characteristic of them, which is they seek to enslave. They seek to enslave. To give in to the demands of the opposition to have Titus circumcised would have meant turning the back his back on the gospel. And so Paul resists. Paul fights. But this does bring up an important question because there is another instance in the New Testament where Paul is faced with this idea of having one of his protégés circumcised. And this concerns Timothy, his other main protégé, who he does have circumcised. And why would Paul circumcise Timothy, which happens in Acts 16, you can read about it afterwards, but stand firm with Titus? And the reason for this is that circumcision here is not ultimately the issue. There is nothing inherently good or bad about circumcision, just like there's nothing inherently good or bad about the fact that we have a band up the front instead of singing a cappella. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul insists See, the issue here is these false brothers are saying that circumcision is necessary. Necessary to be part of the community of believers and necessary for salvation. In Timothy's case, there is no pressure. Paul is simply doing this as part of a missionary strategy to make Timothy more acceptable to the Jews that he's preaching the gospel to. To allow him to walk through the, the community better. And more to the point, Timothy is actually half Jewish. While Titus has no reason to be circumcised, apart from the pressures of these false brothers. Timothy George, who's a commentator on Galatians, has this to say about circumcision. He says, today it would seem ridiculous for anyone to insist that all non-Jewish males be circumcised before they they could become Christians or unite with the church. However, this historical development should not blind us to the fact that while the terms of the debate have changed, Paul's struggle for Christian liberty and the truth of the gospel is far from being a dead issue. Human beings are forever trying to add something to God's completed work of salvation. It may be Jesus Christ in the Mass, or Jesus Christ in water baptism, or Jesus Christ in good works, or Jesus Christ in a charismatic experience. Paul's argument is that nothing, absolutely nothing, can be mingled with Christ as a ground of our acceptance with God. Our hope is is built on nothing less and nothing more than jesus blood and righteousness and i want to give a a quick example of this before we move on as a way of illustration of how this actually plays out practically uh, today the bible does not prohibit the drinking of alcohol it prohibits being drunk and it prohibits being enslaved to anything But alcohol in and of itself is neither right nor wrong. And I know people who feel that drinking alcohol is morally wrong, and and I'm gonna tell you, if you believe that today, then it is wrong for you to drink alcohol. If drinking goes against your conscience, then you should not drink. If drinking is the only thing that gets you through the day, then you're enslaved and you shouldn't drink. We have a freedom, provided we don't drink in excess, but that freedom should not lead us or others into bondage. I mean, if you have a friend, for example, who struggles with drinking or views it as as morally wrong, then don't invite them over and drink in their presence. You're hurting your brother or sister. But if I were to tell you that to be part of this church, to be a Christian, is necessary that you abstain or that you partake, either or, it doesn't matter, now we have a big problem. See, I have the freedom to drink or to not drink. But the moment I make this a gospel issue. There's some, there's a problem. I'm, 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 I'm adding something to the gospel. The only thing, the only thing that saves us is the finished work of Christ. The only thing. So the opposition is revealed. But then what happens next? Well, the gospel is affirmed. And I I just want to set the scene. Paul has what appears to be a private meeting between him and Barnabas and those he calls the pillars of the church. These are the apostle Peter, you know, the one who stood up in Pentecost and preached that famous sermon, the guy who denied Jesus three times. He wrote the letters of first and second Peter. And then there's John, the apostle whom Jesus loved. He wrote the Gospel of John, which we're working through at the moment. The letters of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John in the book of Revelations. James is the brother of Jesus, the leader of the early church in Jerusalem, and the writer of the book of James. And these are the most prominent members of the early church. And Peter acknowledges them as such. Don't read into the fact, if you look at it, he actually makes reference to so-called uh, those who seem to be influential, right? G- Paul is not suggesting, this, there's no connotation here that, that he's, this is a dig at them. This, this is not a connotation that's happening. It's not there in the Greek. More it's he's acknowledging that this is the general understanding. This is what everyone else is saying. These are the guys. These are the pillars. These are the important people. They're the authoritative people. And so this is what everyone else is saying. So he's acknowledging the general understanding. But note the contrast that Paul draws between these false, the false believers and the pillars of the church who affirm his gospel. Though he's a pain to accentuating it's a meeting between e- equals, he's acknowledging the important position that they hold. He's giving them a degree of deference. And he recognizes that like him, they have also received revelation from Jesus Christ. And the irony here is that these false believers were claiming that they came from the pillars they came from these guys that they were speaking on behalf of them that what they their message of circumcision being necessary came all the way from the top, and that Paul is just you know a disciple too and he got it wrong Paul is making it clear that he's not sub that he is not they are not he is not subordinate to them, and that his gospel comes from the risen Christ, but he also wants his readers to understand that there's no big rift here. There's no divergence of opinion. Him and Jerusalem agree on the gospel. The gospel was affirmed by them. And when in verse 9, Paul is given the right hand of fellowship, it says right hand of fellowship. That's like good old Christian cliche. we like like, give each other the right hand of fellowship. This is not like this kind of shaking of hands and we're going to agree to disagree. You know, I'll cross my fingers behind my back and shake your hand. The word for fellowship here is the same one used by Paul in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14. And this you will all know, it's a famous benediction. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. That's the sort of fellowship we're talking about. We're talking about Trinitarian-level fellowship. There's a unity around what the gospel means here. There's no divergent of views. There's only one gospel one gospel now there might be a difference in who they're called to preach to there might be a difference in methodologies but there is still only one gospel one good news and we need to grasp this as a people because though we may disagree on many things though we come from a wide variety of backgrounds and cultures and family practices there is only one gospel There's one way to be saved. Nothing to be added to or taken away from it. The gospel is affirmed, and it is one gospel. One gospel. But what sort of good news is it if we don't share it? I mean, it doesn't say much about what we think about the good news if we don't share it. Is it really good news? You see, the gospel is affirmed, but intrinsically part of that is that they... They define a mission. A mission is established. One gospel for the nations, for Jew and for Gentile. When James and Cephas, Cephas being Peter and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave me the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised, only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. The gospel is the good news that you can be saved, so let's go tell everybody. It's good news. This is like not some dull, dour thing that we sit in the corner and be like, Jesus saves sinners. No, We we should go tell people. And this is not a division of gospel, but a division of labor. Both the Jews and Gentiles need the gospel. People from Newfoundland and the rest of Canada need the gospel. People from Germany and Bolivia need the gospel. And Paul is also asked to remember the poor. Now specifically here, this is not a request to remember the poor in general, though, though we should do that. And the Bible does have a lot to say about the poor and the orphans. But specifically here, this is referencing the Jerusalem church who were known collectively often as the poor at this time. This was not a wealthy church. And we get some clues to this in Acts when the number of widows they are trying to take care of. The reason there's a fight about who is getting what and which widows are getting preferential treatment is because there's not enough to go around. Paul makes regular reference in his letters. If you read a lot of the letters of Paul to these collections that he oversees where he was bringing support from all the richer, more wealthy Gentile churches and bringing them to the poor church in Jerusalem. All the churches are in this together. And those who have more are supporting the work of those who have less. This is not some onerous burden they put on Paul. He says he was eager to do it. This is what I want to do. This is my privilege. This is not adding anything to the gospel. This is living it out. This is supporting the work of the gospel. A mission is established. And you know, we're part of this mission here today. That very mission that was articulated We're part of it here today. I mean, you and I can hear the gospel today because the church in Jerusalem sent Paul and Barnabas, who sent others, who sent others throughout history until the gospel has penetrated almost every corner of the globe. And so this should drive us to proclaim and remember believers around the world who have less than us to support the gospel everywhere it's preached. So as we head into the new year, I have two challenges for us, New Year's resolutions, if you will, since this is a New Year's Day, well, it's New Year's Eve sermon. So, so we got, I got two New Year's resolutions that I would encourage you to make your resolutions this year. And these challenges, these resolutions are particularly relevant because we are looking at some big changes in the coming years as a church. We're moving from being a smaller church to being more of a medium-sized church. We're looking at building a new building. We're looking at planting churches. And all of these things, they're good things. Like, don't get me wrong, very good things. But they also cause problems. They create tensions. They create disagreements. And so it's vitally important that as we head into this year, that we're resolved to be unified, that we're gonna be one in the gospel that we together say there is only one gospel. There's one way to be saved. And this means we hold fast to it and we don't get caught up in our minor disagreements. Unity is not conformity. Unity has never been conformity. Otherwise it's just not gonna work. Like there's no way, like even me and my wife cannot be conformed. We have different likes, we have different dislikes. We don't agree on everything. If me and Amanda can't agree on everything, how on earth can we all agree on everything, right? Unity is not conformity, it's a commitment to the things that matter. It's a commitment to the things that matter. So in the coming year, let's commit ourselves to what really matters, to the gospel. The Jerusalem Council, which takes place shortly after Galatians is written, um, you can read about it in Acts 15, actually calls on the Gentiles to abstain from food sacrificed to idols. But later in the book of Corinthians, Paul will note that food sacrificed to idols doesn't matter unless it causes your brother to fall into sin you see paul here is willing to concede ground on this minor point but when the gospel is at stake he fights the gospel hasn't changed because christ hasn't changed we need to be unified in the gospel timothy george who i quoted earlier puts this really well he says paul's opponents like some modern biblical critics prefer the jesus of history to the christ of faith Paul refuses to divorce the two. The risen Christ who appeared to him was none other than the same Jesus who walked the dusty roads of Galilee and died on a Roman cross outside the gates of Jerusalem. Jesus could never be an absent savior whose words and deeds like Socrates could be scrutinized and analyzed with dispassionate interest. No! Jesus Christ is victor, the ever-living king of the church and lord of the future. The gospel is one, it hasn't changed. And because what's the point of the good news though, if we don't tell anyone about it, let us the second resolution be, let's support the work of the gospel. Do it yourself. Go give of your time and your money to see the gospel transfer lives here and around the world. And I guarantee you won't regret it. Don't be a bystander. This is why we want to plant churches. Why are elders of cast a vision we have? Because there are 190,000 people out there in our city dying in their sins. And they need to know there's a Savior. Romans 10 says, How then will they call on him who they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel for Isaiah says, Lord who has believed what he has heard from us. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And remember the poor, there are needs among us, but do we take the time to to find out? Do we take the time to care, to share in their struggles? let's not be bystanders this year someone along for the ride let's support the work of the gospel remember the poor cry out to god that the people of god will proclaim the word of god that life